From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. So, not to play favorites, but this is one of my all-time favorite episodes. If you're a movie buff like me, there are certain films that you've watched over and over again, and they feel like they become a part of you. Not to sound like a lunatic, but you find yourself incorporating lines from the movie into your everyday speech, not even caring if the person you're talking to gets the reference. It's just for you. The characters start to almost feel like friends or at least like three-dimensional acquaintances. One of those movies, for me, like for so many millions of others, is Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing is a nostalgic coming-of-age story that takes place over one summer in the Catskills, but it's also a love story, a quest for independence, a drama of idealism, loyalty, and strength with a strong-minded social awareness that introduced viewers to the way things were before abortion was legal. Our hero, Baby, as in nobody puts baby in a corner, is an idealistic young woman who transforms over the course of the movie, but never compromises her values. A wealthy doctor's daughter, Baby is on vacation with her family at a fictional stand-in for Grossinger's when she falls for the working class dance instructor. As Eleanor will talk about, the movie is about class differences and one person's awakening to those differences as much as it is about anything else. And even without all these bigger themes, the movie would still be beloved for its soundtrack, its brilliant dialogue, the nostalgia, and the performances. Every single actor that Eleanor cast, and she was the producer and primary creative force behind the movie, is absolutely just perfect. It's the strong social commentary, the fact that the movie and storytelling is way more sophisticated, smarter, and sharper than it needs to be, that makes it a classic that you can watch over and over again. It never condescends, it always lifts you up. As you'll hear from Eleanor, the film was supposed to basically be direct-to-video. It was never supposed to be anything, definitely not something still watched and revered 30 years after its release. This is the first episode I've done outside of New Haven. I took our old school equipment and bike from my apartment in the West Village to the Upper West Side, where Eleanor and I talked for hours in her office overlooking Central Park. The walls are lined with photos from Dirty Dancing, both the movie and the stage show. Eleanor put some food out for us, and since we recorded this, we've become buddies, hanging out and helping each other with ideas and contacts. Can't tell you how happy that makes me. So. Here she is. We're going to jump right into the conversation with one of my absolute screenwriting heroes, Eleanor Bergstein. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft for their help getting the word out about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and much more. I'm not a working writer in terms of assignments. I mean, it's something that I want to make because I want to see it. There's something that I want so badly to be in the world. And if it were in the world, I wouldn't do it. But I'm doing it because it isn't in the world. Love Otherwise, that. it's not worth my time. I love so, that. Uh, and so what is it about the story behind Dirty Dancing that made you feel so compelled to get it into the world? Uh, a number of things. One was uh, the year 1963 when Martin Luther King made his I Have a Dream speech. and. Uh, I felt it was the world, it was the last summer that the world had 
one foot in either camp. So you couldn't make this film even three months later. Oh, for one thing, I always soundtrack the heart in my films. I pick the music very carefully. And this was uh, uh, two months after the film is over, meaning August 63, Kennedy is assassinated. Um, two, three months later, the Beatles come. And three months after that, radical action comes. And for me, that's the beginning of the 60s. So by the next summer, all that rhythm and blues music was above ground, so you couldn't have had the story, hmm. and you couldn't even have had the politics for the life. So it was it was the politics simmering. It right. was the, summer uh, of the music simmering. It was summer '63 yeah. when it all started. And so was that the first sort of inkling you had when you came up with the story? I want to do something in the summer. Well, of it was the music. Well, so I mean, there were a whole lot of things. One is um, the music. Of course, the, the soundtrack came from my old uh, '45. Is that right? Yeah, yes. and also I really wanted to bring back partner dancing because at that point people were doing disco dancing, which is the only dancing in the world, I'm a dancer, that makes me not want to be on the dance floor because I like right. dancing up against bodies when you move right. in response to them. So I wanted to bring back uh, the things I'd done when I was a preteen, you know, the mambo and the cha-cha and, right. and the merengue. And so I wanted to bring that back, which meant the Catskills, where I had been as a little girl. And uh, but you, see, you see that picture? That's me as a little girl. Oh, man, at Grossinger's? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. And uh, see, so you see me in the front. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to bring that kind of dancing, and I wanted to bring back that music, which people have forgotten now, the 60s music. Now, if you hear the music from Dirty Dancing, it's, well, you know it. Most people know it and can sing along. Of course. It's and an if they soundtrack. think they're singing an oldie, they're singing the music of Dirty Dancing. They're not singing the music of 63. They didn't know it. It, had, it was then on those late night shows for a dollar you could get them all. So everybody had forgotten that music. Even my husband didn't know it and I would play it in the car. And uh, uh, and it's, it's incredibly rare, um, as you know, for a writer to have control over the music in the film. You were the producer. Would you, would you like to see the scars all over me? I had to <laughs> crawl across broken glass to get that, that music. Right? Once, once, well, I, I had it put on, on the dailies because I thought Smart. I wrote each line of dialogue against a line of lyric. Wow. So I had it played on another track when we did the dailies. And because I always know this day will come. When it was all done, they said, okay, now we're going to get to find young cannibals or right. something else. Some, and, it was 87, right? Yeah, the movie yeah. came out, so some 80s. And yeah. I said... No, you know, you, you, you ruin the movie. And right. they said, nobody cares, but the kids don't like these, this music, nobody right. likes these songs, it doesn't matter. And so bit by bit, scene by scene, I would play the original with the song behind it, and then the scene. And for all, I'm the writer, but I could say, you know, you take the music out behind it, and the scene goes down the toilet. And so one by one, I got those things back. But then there was also, I think I told you the story of Sandalikes, which... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we finally got the original music for it. But that was really, really, really hard. I, I had to fight for every single song. And it was, it was all of these, except there were a couple songs you said that were written for yeah, the movie. Yeah, we had, we had two. Originally, I had written two in, and then we had more. But we had... Um, uh, was it Hungry Eyes? A Hungry Eyes and Time of My Life. And then we had some others... Uh, and I fought very hard because I didn't want to have, uh, I wanted Cry to Me was very important by Solomon Burke, you know, under the baby Johnny singing, you know, when your yeah. lover could. 
And as, as one of our music gurus said, oh, the only person who has, it has nostalgia value for is his mother. So <laughs> there's no point in having it there. Right. And I fought and fought. And then the Blow Monkeys wanted to re-record it. And I fought for that. And I gave them You Don't Own Me, which they thought was a protest song against Margaret Thatcher. So they agreed to do that. And anyway, finally, I managed to keep in Cry to Me. But they didn't put it on the first soundtrack. And then it turned out that people, you know, again, I thought they didn't put either Do You Love Me or, or that on the front. And I just said, if you do anything, put Cry to Me and Do You Love right. Me. But you can imagine my influence. So the, they didn't. And then people came into the theaters with their little cassette recorders to record the song because it wasn't on oh the soundtrack. Either they bought it. So then they put out a second Dirty Nancy, which had Do You Love Me in that. So would you call it a coming of age story? I didn't see it as a coming of age no. story. I saw, I mean, I, I, you know, any more than it's a story of a, an ugly girl and a hunky guy. I think that's really a okay. real misrepresentation. First of all, Jennifer's very beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I've always thought so. You know, yeah. you know they're, they're, they're two people with uh, honor and a kind of uh, crack inside that sort of wants to heal by making the world better. Yes. and doesn't necessarily believe it will be that way. So they recognize each other and they find each other. So I saw They're it as a, yeah. as a particular um, love story, but I also saw it as something that was about honor, that if you uh, reach out your hand and behave with honor, at some point the world may turn on its axis. And that's what happened with Baby. You know, she was very brave and she reached out her hand and Johnny, who believed in nothing, saw somebody behave with absolute selfless honor toward him. And that gave him the courage to pull her back. Mm -hmm. So, uh, no, I didn't see it as coming of age at all. They were both, you know, grown up. But she changes throughout the course so of the movie. He. Yeah, he does. He um, changes more than she does. You think so? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He's, he believes in nobody. He thinks, well, the scene you're talking about is just uh -huh. all about who he was and where he goes. And uh, he has a bigger change than she does. And, uh, you know, she knows that if you work hard enough and put your hand out and want to make the world better, that may happen. And then at some point she doesn't believe in it, which is the biggest change is when they have this, I have two parallel scenes, one you wanted to do, and the other parallel scene is when she says, you were right, you can't win no matter what you do. And he says, I don't want to hear that from you, you can. And she says, I used to think so. That's when she, they reverse roles. And she then is the person who doesn't believe in hope. And he is the person saying, right. that's not true, it's not true for you. Right. So I have them completely reverse right. roles in that. And they inform each other. She, yeah, yeah. She, he then brings her back to yeah. the idealism yeah. that she had before. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess, why do you think people see it as a coming-of-age movie? I mean, because she's young, because she stands up to her well, father? Well, you know, anybody who likes your work for any reason is fine. Uh, I, I get annoyed by those little TV one-liners, right. you know. That, that, you know, I think people know without knowing. I think we talked about the fact that Aaron Carmen and Jezebel a few years ago, called uh, me, I didn't tell you this, uh, called for an interview and I don't even, because I have the show going around the world, I, I don't even want to think about how many interviews I've given. But the, uh, which you do because you owe it to the people who've put on the show and you know, you don't do it for yourself. I mean, I, there's nothing in it for me. But what is incredibly interesting is that um, Aaron said, uh, asked me only political questions. And I said, oh, Aaron, that's Great, you know, thanks. She's one who just wrote the Ruth Bader Ginsburg 
uh, biography, oh, and she's on uh, now uh, MSNBC, and all this. she's a major political reporter now. And I said, I'm, uh, you know, I'm delighted with the questions because there's a very serious political subtext underneath that, but I, I'm amazed that you're asking me these questions about it. And uh, she said, look at the response, Eleanor. You know, get online and look at the response. So I did, and there were, to my amazement, hundreds of letters from men and women saying, uh, you know, I realize how much of my moral and political compass came from my seeing Dirty Dancing when I was a kid. And I thought, wow, you know, I'll always have Paris. Isn't this nice? But since then, there has rarely been an interview that I have that isn't all about politics in it. And that's something I never expected, even though that's the only reason I did it. There are six social classes. There is the illegal abortion. I mean, there are all kinds of things in it. I was going to say, so is it, I would, does it mostly focus on the abortion? No. no. No, that's just one thing. So what else is political in the movie? The, what do you mean by six social classes? Well, there are six social classes. There is there's the staff. There is the middle class guests. There is the working class. There are two kinds of staff. There are the college boys who are working their way through uh, 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 law school. There are the uh, kids who do the yard work who are going to go back to filling stations. Um, there is uh, uh, Max, who is the owner. There is the doctor, baby's father, who does not have much money but is there as a guest of the doctor, mm -hmm. of, of the owner. Uh, and then there are the richer people above, like uh, uh, Vivian's husband. Right. So, you know, they're. they're right. Interesting. And uh, they were populated by people you knew from Grossinger's or just... I didn't... I only went a few years when I was a okay. little girl because my parents were golfers and for the most part women couldn't tee off until one o'clock most places. But my mother was a champion golfer, which I really? didn't get into the movie, which always killed me. And <laughs> Oh, in um, fact, she's not good in the movie, right? Yeah, she's not good in the movie and that's right. because Jerry got a hole in one and he was in a very bad mood and he said, please, Eleanor, put right. it in. So I agreed and the actress didn't know how to play golf, right. so I couldn't get it, you know. But I've always, had I had any idea that the movie was going to be this popular, I would have insisted <laughs> that she become in. Because my mother was a knockout, terrific golf champion. Oh, that's cool. And my father was a good golfer, but my mother was fabulous. Right. And, uh, but they liked to play together, and most golf courses wouldn't let women on until one, because they thought they'd hold the men up, which of course right. didn't apply to my mother. But Grossinger's, which was really meant for people to come meet each other and socialize, had this great Bobby Jones golf course, but nobody was on it in the morning, so they didn't care, so my mother and father could go out at eight in the morning and play 18 holes together. Wow. So they would go out and play, and I was like, eight, nine, ten, and I would uh, just go and put my nose against the... Uh, Speaking of politics, yeah, there's a yeah, protest going on Against outside. the... Yeah. Uh, I love that because it's the Trump Tower over there. Oh, is that what uh, it is? Yeah, a protest yeah. against Trump and Tower? And I could... Uh, I put my nose against the dance studio. Right. So I always thought when I went back, was this my overheated 10-year-old imagination or did these things really go on? Cause right. I was, except that I did go in and dance and they had... Um, what are they called? They had uh, champagne hours where at night the dance teachers would dance with their pupils and everybody clapped and the person who won uh, won the champagne and I would get up with the teachers who would uh, teach me during the day or just right. you know hang around with me during the day and we do the mambo and the cha-cha and the, the merengue and it was so funny to see this little 11 year old do these steps that we'd always win and then my parents could drink the champagne. So it was all, all very nice. That's fantastic. Um, but it's not, I wasn't a little uh, player there. I mean, I was just right. a little girl. Right. 
Um, in terms of the structure of the movie, um, did it always remain the same from your first draft to the last? I mean, as a producer, you were sort of um, in a position where you could say no to notes. Uh, is that right? Or did well, you... Well, you know, the fact is, everyone, we, we sent it at first to everybody. And everybody hated it. So we sent it <laughs> around. And this was the time of, uh, it was just when Flashdance and Footloose and right. Saturday Night Fever Night. So we thought, oh, great. But... To our, in retrospect, I think it's extremely good that none of the studios that does things like this, because, in fact, it would have been uh, a disaster if they'd made it, because none of those are reality based, and this is reality based. So they would have made it into one of these fables, and right. without the reality based, this made no without sense. Without the abortion, certainly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so it actually turned out to be very good, but everybody turned it down, and th then I sent it along with a little cassette of all the songs behind each scene. You said the script with a cassette? Yeah. Oh, I've never and heard And it, it had 60 pages of dance description because every movement has a meaning, so I had also put in a sick, I'm a dancer, so I put in 60 pages of dance description Whoa. in the first script. And that's the story I think I told you, which about the, the phone call I made, I think I told you what? that story. The phone didn't call I tell you? Didn't I tell you about the phone call to the writer of Saturday Night Fever? <laughs> uh, oh, okay, well I'll tell it again me, yeah. because this is useful for any writers out there. Good. I, um, I didn't know whether I should put the dance description in or not, and I wanted, I'm always trying to look like a professional, to know no success at all. I mean, I'm, I'm forever trying to seem like a very professional, whatever right, it is I'm doing. Right, as we all are. And that's really idiotic and hard and, for me, not useful. So, uh, but anyway, I wanted to write a, send a script in that looked like I knew what I was doing. Sure. And I knew every song I wanted, I knew every... Uh, um, uh, I knew every line behind every line of lyric, and I certainly knew every dancing, and I knew the meaning behind every movement of the dancing, because the dirty dancing steps were mine from junior high, and, I mean, transformed by Kenny, but, I mean, the basis of it was that. Yeah. And the, uh, and the, the codified dancing was my dancing from uh, the Catskills, the Mambo, the Tango, the Cha-Cha, all of which right. were very familiar to me, but even within the codification, there was a kind of dancing that I wanted. So I had written these 60 pages of dance description of every, of every scene. Incredible. And then I didn't know whether I should put it in or not. I thought maybe that would make me not look professional. And the only place I could think of that might have dancing, even though it was very different from this, was Saturday Night Fever. So I got the name of the writer of Saturday Night Fever, and I called him up, and uh, I said, uh, hi, look, you don't know me, but I'd already done It's My Turn and published a novel. I mean, the yeah. book of the month. You know, it wasn't that I was absolutely no, you're a real nobody. Adult I'm a person. Yes. And uh, I very, very quickly said, look, I really so admire your work, which was not exactly true. But I said, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I just wanted to ask, well, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm, I'm writing a, a, a dance musical, and I just wanted to ask one very quick question. This will only take a second. Did you put the dance description in the script? And he said, what? And I said, I have 60 pages of dance description, and I don't know whether I'm supposed to put it in the script or not, and I don't want to look like a, right. a, a jerk. And he said, who is this again? And I went over it again very, very quickly. And he said, I don't have time for somebody like you, and slammed down the phone. Oh, my God. And I got into my bed, and I pulled the covers over my head, and I cried and cried, and I thought, yeah. oh, how ridiculous I was to try to write a, a musical. And, you know, years later... I found out that he was just a magazine writer who somebody had bought his magazine article and that's how they... But 
But there is absolutely no excuse in this planet for that. And that was why we talked about this another time. I mean, whoever calls me, even if it's the cousin of someone who was on the supermarket line behind me seven years ago who had a motorcycle accident they think would make a good movie, I will talk to them because <laughs> I never want anybody to feel the way that made yeah. me feel. It's no. just so bad. And especially writers need to help writers. Yeah, yeah, there's just absolutely no excuse for that kind of bad behavior. And it really, uh, yeah, it lost, one might say, well, yes, it lost weeks of my work then and I should have said, well, you horse's ass, but I didn't. I just right. felt totally dis disqualified and... Uh, and and smashed, yeah. and you know, and sick at heart, and as if my ambition was idiotic. Right. And um, I mean, it's wasted a lot of my time because I talk to a lot of people now who only want to write up their motorcycle accident and have me give them all the money from it. You know, so it's 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 not that I, I'm just such a, such a good fairy to really serious artists. You know, you get a right. lot of everything, but uh, it did teach me that. You, whoever comes your way, you really, really have to listen to. And I, the, the thing I do want to say to anyone listening out here, and this is important, is, you know, when people talk about what they do, they tend, so many of them, to talk about how well-connected they are, how uh, it took a long time to wait for some movie star who was their friend to call them back. Right. or. You know, I don't know any movie stars. I don't know any directors or producers or anyone. You know, I have a normal life. Yeah. I have huge numbers of people to my great humble joy who know my work. Yeah. Don't know me, but know my work. But I don't know anybody in position of power. So, you know, uh, I have no in with any of it. I mean, the only, the only way you get in finally is to care about your work so much that you will keep at it and keep at it and keep at it until you finally find somebody who sees why you want to do it. And then as, as far as Dirty Dancing, you asked me if I had power over the words. I had no power at all. I mean, if you saw my contract, you'd laugh your head off. But the fact is, everybody thought, after it had been turned down for so many years, everybody thought that it was such a piece of junk that it wasn't worth it for them to quibble with me about changing it. Incredible. And I sent the cassette in, as I said, and it said, EB's Dirty Dancing. And it was turned down because nobody liked the story, and they said, kids won't like the music, and you know, right. for every reason. And then after, it, just about every studio, after a few months after they turned it down, I would get a little note, often from the secretary of the man who turned it down, saying, um, he's been playing it in his car and it's worn out, could you send him another cassette, please? <laughs> oh, you know, and now, that E.B.'s Dirty Dancing is a real little uh, 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 icon, and you should know, if you have it, it means that you turned down Dirty Dancing, which isn't huh. so successful. But as you know, Aaron, they yeah. don't think that way. So. No, of course, but it's also just surprising to me. I mean, it makes sense that the music um, would have ended up getting people interested, but the story is also extraordinarily well told. I mean, as you were saying before, the way that Baby and Johnny are foils for each other, that they help each other grow through the course of the story, um, each of their sort of fall from innocence moment is just so incredibly well done. The abortion storyline, it's, it's, it's just a fantastic script. Um, and so I guess, you know, one question I have for you is, who did you get notes from and how much pressure did you feel to address those notes? Well, uh, 
I got quite stupid notes, but nobody followed through on them because they thought the movie was going to be in the theaters for two days and then go into video, so who cares? So they never bothered to see that I took the notes. So that was useful. Um, Even the money people. Yeah, yeah, mon the money people is what I'm talking about. That's what they expected. They said, you know... Um, uh, Why were they giving you money if they were so sure it was going to be a flop? Oh, well, no, the, the, the point of it was to get it into video. It was a video company that made it. I see. So it was, the video was the whole deal. I it see. was, you know, we'll go into theaters for two days and then we'll go into video. Huh. So th th that was it. But that wouldn't model. make it a failure. That would make it the whole point of the right. endeavor, which is, uh, it, it was a video company that was used to distributing the films of studios. Then the studios said, you know what? We don't need to pay this middleman. We're going to distribute our own videos. So the video distribution company said, oh, we don't have a product anymore, so we'll make our own films, and we'll make them at very low budgets. We had a $5 million budget. Oh and God. we will uh, then just, and then put it out in video ourselves. Yeah. So great. That's it. So the, ours was the first one that was the video company put Dirty out. Dirty Dancing was going to be a straight-to-video movie. Yeah, well, That's two incredible. days in the theater. And, uh, well, so, so now I'll tell you a story about the abortion. This yeah. is interesting. So, um, you know, I was very, very concerned about the abortion. And people said to me, well, Eleanor, why is it here? This is crazy. We have Roe versus Wade. And I said, this is 63. We made it in 86, about 63, 86, Roe versus Wade was flourishing. And yeah. I said, yeah, well, I don't know. Um, they didn't want anything about Martin. They didn't want a whole lot of the stuff. Now it's all come full circle. Not only is Roe versus Wade hanging by a thread we don't even want to talk about. It's awful. But uh, um, uh, yeah, uh, now there are Black Lives Matter marches in the streets every place our, our show goes. Vietnam War, they said, why are you putting the war in? Well, as it turns out, and the anti-war stuff, as it turns out, um, there are young men being sent over to Asia to fight in a war they don't want to again. So all the things that they said, it's over, why are you putting them in, have to my sadness become topical again. And believe me, that gives me no right. joy. But uh, as far as the abortion was concerned, uh, nobody really paid attention to it. I put a lot of purple language in for me, dirty knife, folding tables, yeah. screaming in the hall. Because I thought otherwise young women would think that her appendectomy had gone wrong at Planned Parenthood. Oh, interesting. You know, that they really they had no memory of right. this. Uh, that is burned into my brain, though, seeing her as a kid. The guy had a dirty knife and a folding, folding table. table. Yeah, yeah, I could hear her screaming in the hallway. Right. And, you know, that's, that's a little purple for me, but I thought, unless we do that, they will really think, oh, you know, she had a little, you know, right. a, a little procedure, whatever it was, and it, it didn't work out. So, anyway, then I had a doctor on the set because I wanted to make sure I got it right, and I remember he had, he put a big, and I said, hey, wait a minute, she's bleeding. Don't you have to stop the bleeding first? You can't give her something that will increase the bleeding. He said, it's a movie, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> so was, we, was it a choice? We never saw the abortion doctor who botched it. Did you ever oh, pass no, no, that? We could, that, you, that? You that, were never going to do that. That we would never do, because it's a baby story. Be a and she wouldn't. Movie. Okay. So um, uh, anyway, uh, so we had it in, and then shortly before the movie came out, very excited, the studio called me, and they said, oh, we have a national sponsor. I don't know, it was something called General Foods or something. I don't remember the name of it. And they said, we're going to have a tube of acne cream on every poster. And I said, oh, no, 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 please. <laughs> and they said, yes, wow. and we're so thrilled they're going to do a big campaign. I remember mm. Jennifer called me and she said, Eleanor, please tell me this is not happening. I'm going to slit my throat. And I said, Jennifer, believe me, I'd do anything I could to stop it, but I can't. And I called him and I said, please, don't you understand that nobody over the age of 13 will see this movie if it's there? And they said... Eleanor, 
be happy that you have made a movie that overweight teenagers with acne between 11 and 13 will see it for one week in the mall before it goes into video. So then what happened? But you see, I think, I think God takes care of the righteous. So then, then I got a call saying, oh, the sponsor just realized there's a Conhanger abortion in it. So we'll send you back into the editing room to take it out. Ugh. And I said, oh, well, you see, I'd be so happy to do that. But uh, it's the reason for the dancing. It's the reason Baby meets Johnny, that she learns to dance, right. they have sex, they fall in love. Uh, you know, without that, that, that her father gets involved, exactly. without that, the whole story falls yeah. apart. And they said, oh, gee, we should have thought of that. Okay, so out went the national sponsor. Wow. And in, but I, you see, what I say, to, and I say this to anybody listening, there is a real lesson in this. Because I'm always in places where people explain how they put these moral messages inside and they got cut out. Right. If you want to put a moral message in your story, make sure it's rhythmed into the whole story and is the reason the story takes place. Otherwise, it's going to end up on the cutting room floor Screen and it belongs there. So don't complain about it. Right. That's what will happen. Yeah. And the only reason this isn't there is that there's no element of the story that could continue right. if that wasn't in it. Nobody thought that when they read it. They didn't see it. Right. And it's incredible that it was in the late 80s. There's still now, you know, 30 years later, there are, you can count on one hand how many mainstream movies have had an abortion yeah, but, Well, that's storyline. what they called me. Uh, I remember who was who called me about six years ago and said, well, and I said, oh, that was the first one. Then there were lots. And they said, what? Yeah. And I tried to think, you know, knocked up. Or in the end, <laughs> but it knocked up. They, they don't. Even, they, they, they don't, don't have it. the abortion, yeah. and they, they they think about it, but they don't do it. Uh, yeah, maybe even they sex think about in it the for city, she thinks about it, but she doesn't do it. Right. So you know, there are all the things where, where it's, it's cider house rules is the only one I can remember. Yeah, can but that's that's different because yeah. that's uh, 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 it's a book. It's an Irving it, book. It's his yeah. book, and it's also a period right. piece of you know uh, a different century and a different kind of thing. So yes, it's not about a modern woman and what she does so right. uh that that was really good my, my my favorite cartoon is there's one in the new yorker where there's a big march and a man comes up to a woman with a big sign and he says what is a coat hanger abortion anyway and she says haven't you seen dirty dancing huh. <laughs> i love that that's great that, you know that, you've made it when the new Yorker. yeah that that, that made me you. feel very very happy and very blessed um, so I want to play a scene from the movie. Um, I asked you, you know, what scene you might want to talk about from a craft perspective. And um, you chose the scene that's one of my favorites. Um, let's see. This is late in the movie when Baby comes to Johnny's room. Uh, sort of all you have to know for people who haven't seen it in a while is that Baby's father, a doctor, has just saved Penny's life after a botched abortion. Um, her father also wrongly blames Johnny for being the one to get Penny pregnant. So let's play the scene and then we'll talk about it. No, leave 
it on. I'm sorry about the way my father treated you. Oh, your father was great. I mean, he was great. The way he took care of Penny. Was... Yes, but I mean the way he was with you. It's really me it has to do with. Johnny, I came here because my father... No, the, the way he saved her... I mean, I, I could never do anything like that. That was something that... I mean, the reason people treat me like I'm nothing is because I'm nothing. That's not true. You, you're everything. You don't understand the way it is. I mean, for somebody like me, last month I'm, I'm eating juju bees to keep alive. This month, women are stuffing diamonds in my pockets. I'm balancing on shit, and as quick as that, I could be down there again. No, it, it's not the way it is. It doesn't have to be that way. I've never known anybody like you. You look at the world and you think you can make it better. Somebody's lost, you find him. Somebody's bleeding and yeah, you... Yeah, go get my daddy. That's really brave, like you said. That took a lot of guts to go to him. I mean, you are not scared of anything. I don't Me? I'm scared of everything. I'm scared of what I saw. I'm scared of what I did, of who I am. And most of all, I'm scared of walking out of this room and never feeling the rest of my whole life the way I feel when I'm with you. Fantastic scene. <laughs> um, so do you, what do you remember about writing that scene? Oh, well, what I remember is that I wanted the lyric behind it, which is, don't you hear me crying, 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 and as everybody tried to replace it with For Your Precious Love, huh. they said, what kind of lyric is that? And as I tell, and now we have a show all around the world. Yeah. So uh, I've done this, I directed the scene over and over and over again, and it is, so I've talked about it so much, but the main thing is, it's not a love scene, it's an anti-love scene, it's not a seduction scene. And as I tell the actors over and over again, and now I've seen it done by so many actors, um, uh, he thinks he's nothing when she says, you, you're everything, it's exactly what she thinks. You're everything. I mean, she looks at the world, and there is Johnny, and a little rest of the world around the edges of his ears. I mean, that's it. And he's horrified by this, it just shows how stupid she is, the girl he was supposed to be protecting, the girl he's grown up is his closest friend. He was out dancing and starting to be interested in baby when she was on a table with a dirty knife and a, and, and a rusty table. So he is, or a rusty knife and a dirty table, so he is feeling as low as he has ever felt in his life and the contempt that her father had when he looked at her is what he thinks he absolutely right. deserves. So, um, and he took blame when it wasn't his fault, right. but he believes he believe, he deserves it anyway. Um, when she says, you're everything, and he says, and this is very important that the actors know that, because it's, that's why I, I can't imagine writing something and not be, especially if it's a movie when there's going to be one definitive performance, when you're not there, when it's being said, because otherwise you look at this, at this, at the page and mm -hmm. you think, you don't understand but it's, it doesn't mean, you don't understand anything, it doesn't mean, let me explain to you. It means you're so other, you don't understand. And 
uh, I've never known anyone like you is not admiring. It's like you're an orangutan. <laughs> you know, you're not... I, I've never known anybody who understands so little and knows so little. You're such an other person and even you're not scared of anything. It's not admiring. It's just what's wrong with you? You've had such a privileged and entitled life that you're not scared of anything, which is what finally stops her saying me because she's standing there shaking in her foot. But there's nothing admiring about what he's doing. You don't understand is not saying, let me explain to you. Or I've never known anybody like you is not admiring. Um, you're not scared of anything is full of uh, close to contempt. And she fights back and fights back and fights back. And her last remark, I always say, is like when she says, most of all, and that for me is the most important line in the whole movie, is most of all I'm afraid of walking out of this room and never feeling the rest of my whole life the way I feel with you. Because I think everybody has a moment they've come to or remember back to or are still waiting to happen. And you move one way and your life goes one way or another way. You don't it. It depends on what you've done in that moment. Right. And that's her bravest moment. And it has to be very brave if she's overcoming the hostility of the person in the room, not someone who's saying, oh, I've never known anybody like you. You're so brave and wonderful. So he's got to be really wanting to throw her out. And she's got to feel all that resistance and do it even in the face of that. And once she says that, which is so... Vulnerable. Vulnerable and out there. What I always say to the actors, it's as if suddenly there's this little puddle in the room and you can't make it go away and the two of them are there just staring at this thing that you just said, which is out there in the room. And when she says, dance with me, what here means what... Well, the dancing, I also, well, as I said, I have all these pages of dance description. Uh, she is, if you look at it, she is the aggressor at every moment with the dancing. He is right. saying, uh, it goes through a few levels, which is, okay, I will dance with you once. I will turn you around. And you will, since it is the form of the dancing you've seen me do with other people, you think I'm doing it. So in a very elaborate way, she moves into it. And then he stops as if, okay, now will you leave? And then she realizes he was just going through the motion to get her out. And then she has to up the ante and remember this is a very, very, very inexperienced young girl. So that's how brave and relentless she is. Right. And how finally he gives into it and they find each right. other. But it's not a love scene. Interesting. And um, that's why the words are, don't you hear me crying, crying, crying. Right, right. That makes sense. You know, it also, just from a structural point of view, it feels like every moment that Baby and Johnny have been together until this scene, Johnny's been the one sort of dominating. You know, he's older, he's more experienced, as you say, she's younger, this is all new to her. And this is the first scene where she sort of turns the tables and she reclaims power. She takes power for the first time, I should say. A lot of people, I think, think of the line that you say is the most important one in your movie as one of the ultra-romantic lines in movie history. And so you're saying that's just a complete misreading, that it's not a romantic line at all? Oh, I think it is a very romantic it line. Is. No, no, but I think it's a very brave romantic line. It's not a soft line. Right. It's, it's a go-for-broke line. Right. Oh, I think it's a very romantic line. A it's just not a line. soft, sentimental line. Right. I love that. You know, my other favorite scene in the movie is the ending, 
um, how easy was it to come up with uh, the ending where Johnny, you know, has has been um, thrown out and then comes back at the end to sort of um, declare his love for her in front of everyone? Was that always in the script, or was that something that? You oh, came sure, up with? but but for me, the thing that brings him back, as I always tell everybody, is the scene before when they uh, turn the tables on this cry to me scene when he says I've been looking for you all over and she says you were right Johnny you can't win no matter what you do and he says I don't want to hear that from you you can and he says I used to think so so he comes back because he realizes he's killed her mm. and he's killed the thing in her that was so wonderful and that he loved and he's turned her into him so he comes back to uh, bring her back to herself in the world, and that's why he comes back. I mean, yes, he loves her, but he doesn't come back out of love. He comes back because of that scene. That's great. Um, and sort of when he does walk in, um, or, or I should say, when they finish their dance, one of my favorite moments is when you know baby's father stops him at the door and says, you know, when I'm wrong, I say I'm, I'm wrong. <laughs> How did you? That's such an interesting phrasing. You know, he doesn't say, yeah, that's I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I know Robbie was the one who got Penny knocked yeah, up. Yeah, he just yeah. says, when I'm wrong, I say I'm wrong, well, and that's it. Yeah, that, that's I mean, You know, I have a great, as I said, we have a stage play that's all over the world. And the actor often wants to then shake Johnny's hand. And I say, no, <laughs> you're doing as much as you can do. Yeah. That's as that's much as you can bring of. yourself to do. You know, yeah. you, when I'm wrong, I say I'm wrong. You know, you're trying. No, uh, and that you look wonderful out there. With her, and yeah. as I have in the stage play, and I, I don't know if it's in the movie now, I, I'm so, for years right. it's been the stage play. But they walk away from each other, the father and baby, and then look back because it's like the end of a love affair. You know, mm. baby came, it's a triangle. Baby came up as her father's girl, and she leaves Johnny's girl. So it is like the end of a love affair when he says, you looked wonderful out there. They hug, they walk away, and then on stage they look back for a second at each other. But Johnny can't, Jake can't shake Johnny's hand. I mean, the most he can do is say when I'm wrong, I say I'm wrong. And right. I try to tell that to actors. And in fact, once an actor, it was his last night, I was in London or Paris or someplace, but he wanted to show me. And so he said, come, uh, you know, I was going to be in the audience that night. And he said, well, let's just try it. And I didn't know what he was going to do, but he shook Johnny's hand thinking, you know, I'm going to be gone anyway. And uh, Eleanor will see that the audience loves it. And the audience hated it. Huh. They just went, because you just instinctively know that's not right. Right. That's just not right. That's fascinating. I think he thought they'd be thunderous applause. And then I'd say, oh, right. well, you see, I was right. Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, the the mother character isn't given a ton of screen time, but she also has one of my favorite lines in the same scene where the father is about to go stop Johnny from bringing baby up on stage, and he stands up and she says, sit down, Jake. Okay, so here's a studio, <laughs> here is a studio note. Maybe he's out and I get a studio note saying, let's redub it, it isn't... Marjorie, who should say, sit down, Jake. It's Jake who should say, sit down, Marjorie. Oh, my God. And I said, you know what? I, I mean, I was so exhausted by then. You know, we were editing. We were doing everything. And I won't tell you the name of the studio executive <laughs> who gave me that jo yeah. who gave me that wonderful line. I don't think uh, there should uh, be And I said, um, it's a woman. And I, said, <laughs> and I said, you know what? I think I'm not even going to comment on that note, because I cannot think of anything tactful to say about it. Good for you. Because I'm, I'm a good person. What an interesting idea. But you know, I'll tell you something interesting for all you writers who are listening out there. Yeah. Be careful when you have a Hollywood script conference, because when they have an idea, usually it comes or it 
it used to come like this, like, this is probably a stupid idea, and it doesn't mean anything, but you know, why don't we make it her birthday? I mean, that's a really stupid idea. Well, it's a very stupid idea, but you say, oh, thank you very much. Right. You bring the, the draft back, and they say, I thought we were making it her birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. beware of people saying it was a stupid idea. They really want you to put it in. Taking notes is an art form. You have to sort yeah, of it, it, it never really, fight back in the room is my Never philosophy. fight back in the room. Well, like, well, let me but, go but to I'll tell you, but my, uh, oh, this is a good story. The, I don't know if it's a good story, but it might be a useful story. When I uh, made It's My Turn, it was yeah. my first movie, my first dramatic writing, and they flew me out to California. And I thought, uh, oh my, I didn't understand that you fly the original writer out to give her a meeting before you fire her. I was just too dumb to know that. So they were putting me up at the Beverly Hills Hotel and my room wasn't ready yet. And I, I'd had a, a limo take me and I was so excited. And I kept looking forward until finally the limo driver said, would you please sit back? Because obviously everybody would know he wasn't driving anybody important if they were <laughs> looking forward and staring out the window. Hollywood. And I went to the bank of phones and I called my colleagues and I said, oh, I'm here at the Beverly Hills Hotel and I'm ready to go to the story meeting and I'm feeling so grateful. And a man I'd never seen before or since came up to me and he said, excuse me, but I hear that you're going to a story meeting. Don't ever be grateful, my dear. Don't ever be grateful. So I didn't understand until years later. So I walked in incredibly grateful. And uh, they all gave me a whole bunch of notes, like uh, there were about 10 men in the room, uh, a bunch of notes like make it her birthday, you know, right. uh, why is she a mathematician? Why can't she be a dress designer? You know, things like that. Right. And I, then when the meeting was over, I said, could we go around the room again and could everybody give me, and I know with each note I would say, oh, okay, well, if you change that, well, then I have to change this and this and this and this and this and this and this. Because my scripts are very tight, you know. Yeah. And, okay, if you change that, then I have to change this and this and this and this and this and this and this. Okay, sure, I can do that. But if we do that, then we have to change this and then. And at the end of the meeting, I said, hey, listen, could we just go around the room again? Could everybody give me their notes again? Because I want to make sure I have them all when I wow, go do my revision. Myth. And they started around, and one after another, these guys just says, make it better. <laughs> so the, the, the studio vice president drives me back to the, uh, um, uh, the to the hotel, and he takes me to the polo lounge, and he says, I just want you to know... You won the day, but I don't want you to think that you won it because you impressed us. You won it because you exhausted us. Jesus. <laughs> that was okay. So, I mean, it could have been better, and that was fine. I didn't make it better, but I, I saved almost my No, points. that's great. And, and she stayed a mathematician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exhaust them. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, there's, you know, that's not bad advice. Um, you adapted the movie for a stage play. How close is... I'm sorry? You adapted the film for a yeah, stage yeah. play, Dirty mm -hmm. Dancing. How close is the stage play to your shooting script of Dirty Dancing? Well, just about everything that's in the shooting script is there, but, there, you know, it's two hours, so I have... The film is 90 minutes, so I have so much time. It's so great. I have a lot more Baby and Johnny scenes. I have a lot more about the parents. I have a lot more... Uh, um, uh, about the era in which it was, about the politics of the period, which is what the people were involved in. Mm -hmm. So everything that I wanted and, and just got in the sides of the frame, if you look back at the movie, you'll see that it was all sort of there, but uh, it can be entirely there. So that was a pleasure because I could that have all these fun. scenes, you know, Johnny talking about being a teacher. Uh, there, you know, it, 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 Baby and Johnny have a big uh, fight about 
affirmative action when he says, when she's talking about Neil and he says, right. he says he's for standing people's rights and he says to what? And she says, oh, to vote, you know, to have a job. And he Freedom says, my ride. cousin Lou doesn't have a job. Yeah. And, my, you know, and then as he says, and no one's marching for me. Right. And that, of course, is the difference between Baby, which I've always wanted, who is uh, a little girl who absolutely believes in making the world better but has no idea of the working class, mm. none at all. And this is, of course, what happened in the 60s, which is these middle-class kids went out on the barricades, but they had no idea right. what it was like to be a working-class kid. Right. Um, I was always mad that Neil was such an annoying character. But he shouldn't be. <clears throat> he shouldn't be. In the movie, no, he comes yeah. off as... I mean, that whole bit about me and some of the busboys are going on a freedom rag later. No, but, but <laughs> right? that's... See, he, and, and in the show, he really does go... And he, in the movie, in fact, he does go on freedom riding. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just really... Uh, uh, it's hard for him, you know. He's in his grandfather's shadow. Johnny and the other boys have contempt for him. Um, he's trying, you know, yeah. everybody has their own good reasons, which I think that's is an, we know. That's so interesting that you're so sympathetic to him, um, your creation. I mean, but when he does sort of hit on Baby, he does it in a manner that's very off-putting. Well, yeah, but he doesn't succeed, you yeah. know. Uh, but, well, as I always tell the actor when he says, I love to watch her hair blowing in the breeze. She has short hair and there's no breeze. So it's clearly <laughs> something that he prepared in his room at right. night. And then he know. says to her something like, sometimes in this life we hear things we yeah, don't want to hear. Yeah. He's patronizing. But he's not going to get her. He doesn't get the girl. Right. You know, it just bothered me because he then follows up, that up with the line, I'm going to Cornell, which is where I went as an undergrad. Uh, <laughs> but, but again, he's going to Cornell School of Hotel Management, <laughs> right. which is a really... Hard place to be if your family owns three hotels right. because even the other students don't like you. Right. So he does, you know, his parents are dead. He doesn't fit in. Yeah. He can't, you know, as a little boy, the staff kids liked him. Now the staff kids hate him because he, he's their age, but he owns the hotel. I so love so defensive Nobody. <laughs> who, yeah. He has nobody on his side. And for the right. first time, uh, he thinks Baby is his kind of girl. Right. She's not. Right, right. Um, the casting. Is of him, but of all of the minor characters, it's just extraordinary. Were you were you very involved? Did you write sides for the characters? Did oh, you give them scenes from the? I am every place in the casting. I for the stage show, I it's all, all over the world. But now we have like 25, 30 productions. Right. I I have uh, final say on every cast member, even the ensemble. I remember when we did the stage play, I said to my lawyer, "Hey, could I have?" Uh, 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 casting rights on the ensemble, and he said, I don't think any rights holder in the history of the world has ever asked for that, but oh if you God. want it, I'm sure you can get it. So I do, because I think casting is everything. Yeah, you're, you're so right, and it really comes through. There are so many actors in minor roles here who you just feel have oh, full lives off screen. Yeah. Vivian, Robbie, yeah. Neil, um, and so do you remember any one of them in particular being sort of a revelation when you found them? Uh, well, I love Jack Weston. He was wonderful. Was and I remember, for example, uh, Jack came the first day out on a bow tie, and I said, Jack, uh, you know, Max Kellerman has a post office named after him, so if you stamp a letter when you're there, it says Kellerman's New York, which was like Paul Grossinger. And he said, wardrobe, wardrobe, I wouldn't be wearing this bow tie, and he pulled it off and got a tie. That's cool. And he was grand. He was wonderful. He was great. When he says at the end, 
do they have sheet music for this stuff? Yeah, it's just you get you get who he is. He's, in such he's, a he's wonderful. Way. He was based on Paul Grossinger, and he was just Jack was great. Jack became a very good friend of mine. Was my friend until That's he great. died. Love wonderful actor. One of Gabriel Gravitas. When we go around the world, it's interesting. Often our Max is someone who was, uh, say, King Lear in the Berliner Ensemble or something like that. We have these grave, right. uh, wonderful European actors. Right. And, and uh, let's see, uh, well, they were all, well, they were. After, you know, our Robbie was wonderful. He just yes. graduated from Harvard. Our, um, uh, let's see who else. Well, Neil is now Lonnie Price, who's a very, very good stage actor. And, and he was very concerned that Neil not be a joke and that he'd be a serious boy. And we talked about the fact that he's doing the best he can, but he right. can't be his grandfather. Right. Johnny terrifies him. And he can't get the right tone. I mean, right. it was the staff kids hate him. So there's nobody. He's all alone. Right. And he thought maybe Baby was right. going to be his girl, but she wasn't. Make sure he's giving you your hours worth, Baby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he's, you know, he's so, That's he so can't even make himself believe that, that this is happening. So That's he's, I know, I, I love Neil. <laughs> you love Neil. I get it. Yeah. Um, wow, there's an incredible rainbow over Central Park, by the oh, way. Oh, great. That's yeah. amazing. Um, so you've, you spend a lot of your time on the stage play now, right? You, yeah, yeah. you go see it around the world, you make sure it's set up, um, you speak at a lot of conferences. Um, no, 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 you don't, no. you, you were telling me last time I was here, you've spoken well, I, a lot occasionally of Occasionally if I have to, yeah, I do, but I don't speak at a lot of them, yeah. Uh -huh. And what are you writing these days? Uh, well, I'm just uh, in about the last month, I think, of finishing a, a, a rather long memoir. Fantastic. So yes, it's all there, and, and there I just put it all together, and I saw these two huge boxes. Oh, wow. And uh, I have a... What uh, made you decide to write a memoir? I gave so many interviews, and I thought... I started out thinking, actually, my friend Richard Greenberg, you know, the playwright? Sure. Junior, yeah. He's amazing. Uh, he uh, wrote me and said, and he was a student of my husband's at Princeton okay. and someone I know, and he, we started writing each other a lot of letters, and he said, why don't you print your letters? And I said, oh. And then he said, uh, why don't, uh, and, and then he said, I've always wondered, what is it like to write something iconic? And then I thought, I just finished a novel about Italy, and I wanted, and I just finished a stage play, and another movie, and I wanted to go out with all of them. Um, but I thought, uh, oh, you know, why don't I just write a funny little memoir, and then I won't have to write, do any more interviews, and that will be great. And I went to the beach with a big sketch pad, and I sat on the beach, and I wrote what actually my husband is in there reading at the moment, which is the first chapter of what is now, is if you look there, is now. It makes Proust look like he jotted it on Volume a pad. And, uh, uh, so, I mean, I have, what, 40 chapters there. And uh, I started writing and writing and writing, and I realized it wasn't going to be a kind of, this is what it was like when I was a kid. This is what, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a, a very different kind of impressionistic thing. Hmm. And as I said, uh, uh, the first chapter is what my husband is reading now. And, oh. and I, sent it, I sent each chapter to Richard as I did it, and he would send things back wow. to me, and it was just in a kind of little vacuum. I didn't expect it to take this long. I didn't expect it to do so much. And in the process of it, I went off and did a bunch of other things, but that's uh, now I'm just concentrating on getting it, it finished because when I put it all together uh, for my husband to go through it, although he has read some sections as we've gone along, I realized that it was now an enormous book. 
Wow. And it's it's not it's not an autobiography more than it's a memoir, you know. When there's a lot about dirty dancing, but there's mm -hmm. a lot about it's great. a whole lot of other stuff. I have a feeling it's not going to stop the interview requests. In fact, <sighs> it might increase them. Uh, but I mean, you've said you know one thing you hate is when people ask you if you're a baby, which of course is absurd, right? That takes away your um, it, it, it sort of robs you of being able to create characters, right? Uh, does the memoir sort of make clear the differences between you and this fictional character? Uh, but, well, no, unfortunately, it, it, it kind of does the opposite. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to my horror, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, it brings up something that happened, um, well, when... Uh, well, there are scenes... In, uh, now, I'm, I'm afraid the stage play and this just get right. tied together. And, you know, it's something that I've made much clearer in the stage play, which I'm very sorry that I didn't, is that Baby's father was incredibly brave, that he was risking uh, losing his medical license and a jail sentence. Right. And that is uh, by taking care of Penny and not reporting her. I mean, and the laws were very strict about doctors in those days, so he was very heroic doing yes. what he did. And, uh, I, you know, it's, it's there and now it's very, very clear in the stage play. Um, but I remembered a little scene from my life when I was about 10 and I was on the... Uh, and Baby doesn't think about this. That's why her mother's so angry at her. And there are scenes later when she runs and gets her father to take care of Penny. She never thinks in terms of what she is exposing him to right, or what he is right. doing. Good point. And uh, so now it's very clear in the stage play what it is. But uh, I, and I think nothing comes from my life, but I remembered when we were on a train when I was a little girl, I was about 10, and I, I loved riding on a train because I could go from seat to seat to seat and talk to people. And who can resist a little 10-year-old who's listening to you so intently? Right. And I got people's life stories, and I loved it. And I've always been uh, uh, someone who's loved to hear what's happening at the next table at a restaurant. I'm the eavesdropper <laughs> to, uh, from hell. A lot of writers are. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I love this. So my parents had a, a little uh, stateroom, and I would just go from seat to seat to seat and people who would never see we were going from California to New York and people who would never see this little girl again would pour out their lives to her and it was wonderful for me and then uh, when we were just leaving Chicago coming back to New York one trip some people put a very very old lady on the train next to wheezing and almost said next to a young man and they said uh, here this is our mother our uh, brother will meet her in New York and they raced off the train, and it was clear that the old lady was almost dead. And, you know, she was all huddled up, and the young man didn't know what to do. And my mother called me into the state room, into their drawing room, and she said, don't tell anybody on, on the train that Daddy is a doctor, because for treating somebody out of state, he will lose his license, and mm. he will go to jail. The lady is dying, and her children put her on the train, hoping she'd die on the train. Jesus. So do not tell anybody that Daddy, at some point, in the course of the night, she will die, and if Daddy is there, he will go to prison and he will lose his medical license. Oh my God. So don't to put tell on anybody. Yeah. So I was out in the thing, and in the middle of the night, of course, she started a death rattle, a kind of, a, and the young man who was there just screamed out, "Is there a doctor on the train?" And I said, "My daddy's a doctor." <laughs> and I ran to the stateroom to get my father, and I always remember the look my mother gave me, 
And I, what I remember even more than that is I remember my father scrambling down instantly, taking his bag, running down the aisle, putting the stethoscope over his pajamas and sitting all night with the woman. Wow. And she, when the train pulled into Grand Central, she was still alive and they, the young conductor and the young man carried her off. And even I could see how disappointed her children were on the other side because <laughs> they thought she'd be dead. Wow. But uh, I, I, until I was writing this memoir, I'd forgotten that story and I thought, oh, that's where it came from. Right. And what, what I've always been very, very, very concerned about when we shot the film, when we have the stage production, whether is that the doctor unhesitatingly right. runs like hell to take care right. of her, never hesitates. And that's that when, so you know, I tell that to, I told that to Jerry, you know, I tell that to every actor around the world, you know, don't stop and buckle your belt. Right. You're just running there and you're not hesitating right. and you're going back to see her the next day and it never occurs to you to call the authorities or anything. You're just right. there no matter what it risks for you. And so when you wrote that scene in the movie, you weren't consciously remembering that moment on train. No, no. It was just in I, you. It no. just, you know, I, I remember that I was very concerned to show how heroic her father was in running there. And it, it disturbed me later when I realized some people didn't realize what the stakes were for him. And so that's why in the stage play it's very clear and there's a long scene with uh, uh, the mother and the right. father where she says, yeah, you're a great man and I know that, but it, you know, uh, the implication is it's a pain in the ass to be married to a great man. Right, <laughs> I'm I love that. always telling that to the actor. But no, I, so I'm coming up with a lot of stuff that really is from my life to my mortification since I keep telling people that right. has nothing to do with my life. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> um, Thank you so much for this. Is there anything else you feel like we haven't covered? or, or uh, No, no. I would just say to okay. any writer who's listening to this, really just pick yourself up off the floor again and again and again and again. You know, something that is uh, enormously popular seems inevitable, but it never is. <laughs> and the only way it will seem inevitable is if it seems to be a copy of what somebody else did before, and who wants to do that? Yeah. So if it's something that nobody's done before, uh, you will get a lot of pushback, uh, you will get a lot of misery. Uh, I think um, I think staying power is all. You know, I will just be indefatigable, I will pick myself off of the floor again, I will fight, and I will sit in the face of scorn and everybody telling me that they know better than I do and in a way they do because they have this series of movies that I wouldn't want to be involved in that have made a lot of money so figure out what's important to you because no matter how well you do no matter how famous you become no matter how much money you make if it's for something that you don't have respect for your life will be crappy so I mean what I always know is I mean I always said that what I wanted was uh, when I wrote my first novel, I, there was an interview in a women's studies magazine and they said, uh, who's your favorite audience? And I said, oh, my favorite audience would be everybody, you know, every age, every economic group, every gender, right. everything. Um, and I wouldn't care if they didn't uh, know my name or know who I was, but they want them to have read it at that point. It was about a book. I said, read it. And the worst thing for me would be for people to say, oh, I hear she's a great writer, but nobody's read my work. And in a way, that's what I've gotten, which is that I can go into almost any room in the world and stand on a chair and 
large number of the people in the room will have seen my work. They don't know right. who I am, but I don't care about that. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I got something that means a lot to people around the world. It so sure does. for the amount of work that you put into it, make sure that's your ambition. Otherwise, it's an awful lot of work that will never make you feel it was worth it. I love that. Fantastic. Thank you so much. All right, that was Eleanor. I could seriously just sit in her office uh, on Central Park South and just talk about dirty dancing, I don't know, all day. Um, she's the best. She's absolutely the best. Thanks so much to our producer here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please subscribe. Uh, you can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or email me at aaron.tracy at yale.edu. See you next week. <laughs>